mental health can be a difficult topic to talk about. I'd like to change that. I'm Marcus Pipworth and welcome to the Ministry of Change podcast. Hello, yes, welcome to the Ministry of Change podcast. Um, I've just got back from the USA. I was in New York for 10 days staying with my friends. Um, I hadn't seen for a while so it was really nice to go there um, I hadn't really been to New York I'd been actually no that's not true I'd been to New York when I was about 14 or 15 February 2001 um, my cousins used to live there so uh, we went I went with my mum and dad and my brother and sister um, I remember at 14 or 15 thinking it was very uncool being on holiday with my parents so um, I don't think I appreciated appreciated it as much as I could have but um, also I guess it was a very different world then it was pre 9-11 so this time I was entering a very different New York uh, post 9-11 Trump New York which uh, yeah definitely um, felt strange but very interesting to actually be there Um, uh, so while I was there I could never just have a holiday (laughs) I wanted to uh, explore uh, similar themes to what I usually explore Um, I guess to talk about mental health but also to talk about what it really means to be human in this age of increased complexity so um, uh, I was put in contact with a woman called Dara Blumenthal um, through a a mutual connection and uh, we met up for for a chat in a cafe and which talked like really had a really interesting talk about um uh self-author how to self-author your life and um why so many people get trapped in uh in the sort of belief that reality is the um is is the things that our our family say the things that society say the things that our workplaces say the, the way we get so stuck inside uh this belief that uh the world is created outside of ourselves whereas uh, really once we can break through that which often happens through some sort of well it doesn't have to but I feel in my experience this is often why people that have experienced some sort of mental health issue start to uh, be able to perceive the world in a different way is because they're sort of forced out of that bubble and realize that that way the world that they had perceived works doesn't work for them and so then it leads you down this um other path of exploring what are the alternatives if this thing that I always thought was true isn't necessarily true then what could be true what what other possibilities exist now I'm able to start exploring for myself how I'm starting to be able to create my own um, understanding of how of why I'm here and what I can do and I I think that's a really um, it's a really interesting thing that I've been exploring and so when I met Dara, Dara it was really nice because um, she's someone that has spent a lot of time thinking about this over the years and uh, and so after that chat in the cafe it was one of those things I thought oh that was an amazing conversation if only we could have recorded that but um, uh, anyway I arranged to meet her a few days later at her apartment in New York and we sat uh, in sort of downtown Brooklyn and we went and sat and had this really nice conversation, which, um, yeah, I'm still thinking back to it. I think it's amazing how you can go to another country and meet someone uh, and have this instant connection and 
realised that despite our geographical distance, in a way, through very different backgrounds and very different sort of approaches, we we've been exploring similar similar concepts and the idea that this is happening all over the world there are people uh exploring these uh, sort of these alternative ways of living these alternative ways of thinking these alternative ways of approaching life that really help create uh an environment where people can thrive and um and i think at the heart of dara's work is really just the very simple idea of how can we enable people to have the conversations which matter how can we allow people to create spaces where people can be vulnerable and people can really sort of deal with trauma and I think in essence that is at the heart of what I'm doing like all I really want to do is create spaces where we can we can drop our mask we can take our masks off and be like we are human I am human I am not perfect I make mistakes i do embarrassing things I uh, I've had a hard life or sometimes I this, this has not been hard but I'm still struggling with x y or z and I think that is just so important I think it's just so important that we can create these spaces where we don't have to pretend to be someone else where we can just be who we are and I think I found that in talking to Dara these these themes came up a lot and I'm really glad that we managed to sort of connect and be in the same city at the same time and really and get this opportunity to sit and record this conversation. So um, I'm going to stop waffling on in a minute. I would just like to say that, um, uh, again, it would be so amazing if you do listen to the podcast, if you could go on to iTunes and rate and review it or wherever you have your app, rate and review and comment and uh that will just and and subscribe and that will help the podcast reach more people uh, and we can hear more stories about mental health and and how we can thrive also i have my patreon page which is the way that i'm trying i would like to be able to sort of fund this so i could make it a bit more sustainable um so like you could go on there and just for a tiny amount of money a month like you can put anything in there that's the, the price of a cup of coffee or whatever you could you can get access to extra content but more importantly it help, just helps me support and make this financially viable uh at the moment uh i'm it'll probably take me about a million years <laughs> at the rate i'm doing it to get to that point but I, I do appreciate the support from all the people i've got so far and yeah if you do like this uh, and you have got that ability to donate a small amount then that's fine but if you haven't, then don't feel bad about it. Um, I just, I'm happy you're here and listening to this content and I hope you get something out of it. So, all right, I'm going to press play now on the conversation. Who I am. Uh, yeah, so my name is Dara Blumenthal. My training is in sociology. So I have a doctorate in sociology. I have a master's in critical theory. Um, I'm certified as an integral facilitator. I work as a developmental coach. Um, and also I sort of, I'm dabbling in teaching meditation uh, in certain circumstances. But that's, that's like, that's like a, a bigger goal, vision for my life, is to teach meditation. 
Um, I've been working on work for the last five years or so since I left academia. So I was teaching cultural studies and then I have just sort of been working directly on organizational culture um, in these intervening years. And I've, so I've done organization design, I've done more organization development, and I focus more now on leadership development and team effectiveness. And uh, I think, you know, one of the most important things for humans and people who do work in the world and work together right now in the 21st century is is the level of reality that people are functioning at um, and the level of reality that people's conversations are held to. What, what do you mean by that? Um, it's like we exist as adults so much in abstraction and I feel like like the modern workplace is like all it is is abstraction. Unless you're like like making stuff, you work in a factory or something. Um, but most people in this like information age, like everything is an abstraction. And so no one is like really talking about what's going on for them in the moment. Um, and because no one's talking about what's going on for them in the moment, people aren't really having real conversations. Um, and it's it's fascinating because at least in the like the work that I do in the organizations that I've been working with for the last several years there's this whole movement to be quote unquote responsive to be able to respond to what's happening and uh, just the most fundal, fundamental way to be able to respond is to know what's really going on how do you get people to talk about that sort of stuff <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, well, it, de- it depends on the context. Um, I think, well, I'll just talk about like in an ideal situation. Okay. Um, there's like a, okay, so the other thing that I'm like really big on right now <laughs> I think it's what I've always been really big on, but the way that I'm talking about it now is, is about, I'm talking about it as being in relationship. So being in relationship to yourself, being in relationship to your, your friends and your family, your partner, your colleagues, your team, and being in relationship to your work. Um, and then whoever your work is in relationship to, also being in relationship there. And so I, so I guess what strikes me right now is that I think what's really fundamental is increasing our ability to be in deeper relationship in all of these capacities, in all of these uh, venues, um, and to be into and to be in relationship really means fundamentally being in greater intimacy with whatever's really happening, and all of the sort of externally focused relationships are fundamentally predicated on the intimacy with yourself. So you can't really be in relationship with your client, you can't really be in relationship with your work, you can't really be in relationship with your partner, your friends, your family, if you're not fundamentally in intimate, deep, intimate relationship with yourself. Which is the hardest one, the hardest relationship to foster <laughs> in many cases. <laughs> Why do you think that's the case? Um, I don't know, I think it's because it's scary. I think it's because you'd know, 
I mean, I, I just find like it's easy to sort of like to love other people and trust other people, but like when it comes to yourself, you sort of know. Well, I can't say you like I. Yes. Yeah. Personal experience, to sort of. I know everything that I think I know is going on. I know there's like subconscious things which are happening, which I, which I'm not aware of. But like, you can't lie to yourself, basically. So you, you always, um, you always know whether. Um, whether you're hiding something or not and mm. and it could be a scary place to go to like you can easily project an image that someone else's life is going well someone else has got the perfect sort of job the perfect family the perfect home but you can't project that onto yourself because you're aware like of all the insecurities and the like the monologue that's going around in your head so I guess mm. for me that's I mean it's been a long journey of getting to a point where I feel like quite comfortable in myself but it's hard, but then to do it to some, for someone else, like to be able to see the good in someone else and to see the value of someone else, I find that has always been relatively easy. Mm. So I can't yeah. really say why it's for other people, but I have spoken to quite a lot of people and it always seems to be that there's that inner monologue or like society or whatever saying that no, you need, you're not good enough. You need to do more, you need to do more, and it's hard to break down that barrier. Yeah. Yeah, so the um, the scarcity thing, that's like a big theme in our society. Uh, I don't remember what it is exactly, but Brene Brown in her The Power of Vulnerability Teachings, which is awesome, um, that audio series, she ties it back to like a particular moment in, in our fairly recent history I don't remember what it is right now but she was like this thing happened and then like we're we've been in scarcity since then basically um so 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 what's interesting right is if we set up the polarity of, of scarcity the other end of the polarity is abundance um and so it's it's really interesting for me to think about how we can get that polarity to flip in our experience. And this is like a phenomenon that often happens in facilitating groups, um, is that you see, a, you see like the polarity flip, like someone, like the conversations about like authenticity, everyone's talking about authenticity. At some point in the conversation, someone starts pretending and the whole conversation becomes about pretending and pretense. So there is like this natural flip that's possible because these polarities are so... I don't know if it's just like it's sort of how um, we're wired, how we make associations, because we're such a highly associative species. Um, but so that's really interesting. So there's like a cup. So there's like the scarcity polarity. And then there's like this like me, like there's the me and then there's like the you, like this separation. Um, so that's a, that's another really fascinating one to think about. Um I don't know, I could like go in many directions. Yeah, like t I think the separation one. Actually, but I think separation is something that's really, uh, would be really interesting to visit. But like, I was also interested, what, what do you think the world, the world view of abundance looks like to you? Mm. Yeah, so it's, uh, I think it's related to the separation one. Because um, I think abundance, 
if, if scarcity is like sort of in a fundamental way, I'm not good enough, I haven't done enough, I'm not working enough, I'm not whatever it is, it's like that whole like enough thing. Um, it's like deeply individualized. Like the experience of it is as an individual, which is like fundamentally being separate. And I think, so the way that we've learned in the contemporary West is to like to quell that, that thirst for, we could, I'm going to say for connection um, or, you know, in this case, like to, which is like the more positive spin but to quell this, like, I'm not enough fear, instead of going towards connection, we go towards consumption. And so, like, the whole abundance idea starts to be stuff outside of ourselves, material objects, experiences, things, whatever, people, promotion. So I think to reorient the abundance on this sort of scale with scarcity is that it's, like, not only am I, like, fundamentally good enough, it's that, like, I, I, I know how to resource myself. I know how to be in connection with myself, with others. I know how to, like, fundamentally trust that I can navigate any situation in any scenario that I'm presented with or that I invite into my life or that I enter into. Um, and so, the, so fundamentally that ability to navigate your life, to have the, school, the skills and the tools to do so, And to, and to know at like some deep fundamental level that you're not inherently separate. You're not alone. Um, yeah, I think that that's, well, that's how I would characterize the abundance worldview at this moment. And how have you managed to get to that point in yourself? <laughs> uh, or have you not? <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's like, it's a, it's a practice. Um, so my sort of life story is I, I was invited into decision-making about my own life from a very, very young age, like preschool. Um, I was like making decisions about my life. And it was sort of magical. Um, and so I, like I learned the power of, of how to make decisions for my life and that like I would make a decision and then the thing would happen and especially because I was doing it from such a young age and maybe like honestly too young but I developed this like really strong internal compass moral ethical judgment compass that like I've been working at for most of my life um, what do you mean when you say you were invited into it? Like, well, my parents were like, what do you want to do? And I would say, I want to do that. And they say, okay. So like, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of expectations, um, in like an, in like an external sense. Like there are always expectations in like the family constellation of like, you know, it's always like what you can and cannot feel, what you can and cannot talk about. Like there are always those social dynamics. But when it came to like, what do I want my life to be like from a super young age? 
my parents were like, you tell me. Um, so, so they really invited me into that and then to that like sort of decision-making process about my life. Um, and then they really, uh, they nurtured my curiosity. So like I still have this like joke with my dad where I say I have a question and then I have a second question <laughs> um, after like, can I ask you a question? Uh, so, and like I've always like been asking questions and they've been answering my questions about life. Um, so like I wasn't made to do a lot of things and I wasn't, it's funny because sometimes when I think in some ways like I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of discipline. I wasn't disciplined. But on the other hand, I have this huge amount of personal discipline that I've cultivated because my decisions and my expectations have always been my own. So that's a really, I think that's a really, really different way of growing up than the average person experiences. Um, and that's the thing that when I, when I speak or... Um, like NYU is my alma mater, like sometimes I give a talk at NYU to students and they're like, but how did you just follow what you felt was what you wanted to do? Um, and so it's like for me, like it's a process of like mining the things that have been so second nature to me so that I can help other people enter into that in themselves. Yeah, because yeah. I, I think that's the interesting bit is that space between like what is what is the thing that I want to be doing I need to be doing what's the thing that I can feel like intuitively is the right thing to be doing now and what is the thing which I feel like I should be doing yeah um and it can be a really hard line to find the difference especially if it's someone that hasn't really spent any time in that curiosity inquisitive phase where it's suddenly like um okay all the things that like I thought that I'd been listening to actually that's maybe not the truth but now like, how mm. do I find out what like what's my own path and what is the path that I've been told I should be taking and I think that's I don't know I, I find that a fascinating sort of question yeah yeah that um at, like as human beings we are like fundamentally a creative species so like you know we've done this amazing thing with language in our society where like everything um like all of these terms are so loaded like even you say creativity and people have like an like an image or like a very particular definition associated with what it means to be creative or a creative it becomes an identity i'm a creative um but I think it's just, it's so fundamental to who we are. And I think it's like in, in the journey of understanding what you want your life to be, getting connected with however you are creative is a, is a huge thing. And it might, it probably changes. It might be lots of things, but it's super important. I've been having this conversation around creativity with quite a few people recently, mm. and they always seem to not always, but there's often seems to be this thing where people will say, I want to do, I want to do sort of X, Y, Z. I want to like sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's something like directly creative, like I want to paint or I want to do poems, or maybe it's something more 
sort of abstractly creative like I want to like start a project I want to sort of lead this group of people in something but like often there's um especially with the more sort of sort of uh artistically creative pursuits I've had this question of like yeah I, I want to but I never I haven't really defined what the point of doing it is yet so mm. I like, keep putting it off <laughs> yeah like, like we live in a world I feel that yeah, yeah has created this idea that creativity needs to have an end result like you need to be yeah being creative because that will achieve this rather than my opinion which is only my own opinion so maybe very wrong is that creativity is a chance just to be it's a chance to express yourself it's a chance to have no like it's 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 a space where you don't have to have a goal an ultimate goal yeah. that will to satisfy someone else it's just it's a way of sort of being alive yeah <laughs> and so it sort of confuses me but also takes me back to a time where I thought like oh I'd love to do all these things I'd love to write I'd love to be an artist but I studied the wrong thing and like mm. I haven't got the like qualifications I can't haven't got the like right experience to do this until I some point along the line realized that oh wait I'm waiting for someone external to tell me that I'm I'm like qualified to be this yeah. person that I want to be rather yeah. than just being it but I never know like it's a hard one to sort of persuade people that they don't need to wait for someone else to tell them to do something totally allow them to do something yeah, yeah so there's that right that's like the um which is getting more into sort of like self-authoring is the way I would talk about it is like how how are you like uh, defining and being made up by your own internal sense of of who you are and, and what the world needs. Um, the other thing that it makes me think about is, and I was just speaking with my mentor, Rob McNamara, and he has this whole um, inquiry that drives a lot of his life around death um, because he's had a, he had a near-death experience. He died and... Um, and it's, a, you know, he's alive now and it's something that, that drives him and he talks about a lot. And so we were just speaking before this conversation you and I are having now. And he said, I wrote it down, which is in some notebook that's not in front of me. But he said something to the effect of every, every time that we trade our aliveness for something else, we enter a delusion that we're going to have some other chance to do it at some other point in our life. And so how can we not put off our happiness or what makes us really alive for another job or another relationship or retirement or whatever it is and like deeply enter into the reality that our life is incredibly variable, that we are variable and that we have no idea when it's going to end. And then, like, it end, like it's fundamentally ends. Um, so it's interesting because, so to try to tie a lot of these things together, so in, you know, this, like, line of conversation, I'm thinking about, like, about, like, post-industrial society and, like, doing and how, like, so many of our systems around work, how we, how we organize and accomplish work are still really fundamentally like tangled up in uh like 
what's it called? Uh, like the, the logic of being a factory worker. Like we trade X for Y and that becomes Z, which is like totally not how our world functions at all. But so we still like, and you know, not even mentioning how like, at least in the States, like the dollar has been divorced of productivity for decades. So, but we still are like, we still like use this simple linear logic of like, well, I have to do X, Y, Z. I have to make sure I'm being productive. Like we use this like production logic so deeply in how we organize ourselves and like our, our internal lives, not just like the work we do. Um, when like we're actually like in a really different place socially, you know, like things are way more complex than that. Like prediction has gone out the window, like global warming, you know, climate change is like a real thing. Like we don't like we don't know what's emerging and we try to like solidify things in this like rigid way by using this like really outdated logic. And I had I don't know. It's like the, the liveliness that becomes possible when we start to undo a lot of these dynamics are I just think fundamentally what we need is a species to survive. Why do you think it's so why do you think it's we're so far from that? Or <laughs> do you think we're and do you think we're it's changing? I definitely think it's changing. Um so when I was a college student and I, st- I was starting to study mind-body awareness techniques and identity, so this was uh, over 10 years ago, I was, my orientation was like, well, I'll, I'll have to like get a real job and then in my like, I'll volunteer or on the side, I'll teach mind-body awareness, you know, like for the people that are interested in it. Um, and like, it's totally, it's like super becoming mainstream now. Like every, like everyone has at least heard the word mindfulness, I think, if not like tried to participate in some mindfulness activity. So, um, that's a good signal. Like things are changing. We're trying to become more mindful. Um, it's a good question. You know, like the easy answer or the answer I would have said, like, you know, even maybe a few years ago, is that we're super super disembodied, which I still think is true. Like, we are a super disembodied society. Um, But it's changing. That's changing. We have, like, yoga and meditation and new practices that are people, people are using to become more uh, connected to themselves. So that's changing. I think the big barrier that we're bumping up against is that we don't know how to have conversations. We don't know how to talk about reality, about what's really going on for ourselves. Um, And in order to do that, not only do we need just the practice of, you know, there's the whole gamut of like being connected to yourself, having that intimacy, paying attention to your physicality, to your emotions, being able to like identify and name what's going on for you having the ability to articulate whatever's going on for you and then bringing that into conversation. And then in conversation, being able to work with your nervous system to a certain extent that you can actually stay in relationship, not only to yourself and to whoever you're in conversation with, so that you can work on that material. That's like 
in my view, like that's the next big skill set that we need as humans. And I think that's why like you're seeing this proliferation of coaching and facilitation, the sort of work that I do is becoming, um, I don't know, I live in the New York City bubble. So at least here it's becoming much more mainstream. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's really interesting, that idea of the, the, the bubble as well, because that's something I struggle to work out sometimes is that I feel that there seems to be a lot more people talking about like their, their mental health and their like lifestyle and how they can live more aligned with the, their own sort of values. But then I also realised that I that is what I do. I go around and yeah. talk to people that have uh, have sort of navigated sort of difficult parts of life and, and found a, an urge to sort of go deeper and to explore and to inquire about like sort of the sort of the meaning the deeper meaning of that behind their life and that sort of thing and so then I like start to think like are there more conversations going on about it or is it just that I am now yeah. in the sense of them and also because of what I do I find like people come up to me more often because they know that I'm quite willing to talk about like my own sort of, sort of difficult things that I've been through so like then people talk to me and so I get this impression that like everyone is sort of thirsty to sort of talk but then actually whenever I step outside of that bubble and I realise like that, that that's not that often it's very very far from the case that people just don't talk yeah and um so yeah I'm always keen to work out how I can sort of step outside of that and actually sort of not just talk to the people that are already talking about it yeah in your like echo chamber yeah well I think there's so there's two things that come to mind one I definitely think there's um there are a lot more like at least national conversations uh, about pain and power happening than ever before. You know, the Me Too movement is like the easiest one to cite. Um, you know, we just had this very public display of negotiating power and gender, um, you know, with the Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford case. Um, so... You know, which you know, we're 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 getting a more intimate look into people's lives in this way than I think any of the generations before us have. Um, and the other thing that I think about, and maybe I mentioned this to you the other day, but uh, there's something happening in this like because we're in this sort of like exponential time zone right now where you know the way technology is functioning the amount of knowledge that people have access to um all of these things were on this sort of exponential development curve um that is like starting to or will soon like outstrip our own ability for understanding there's def i mean the complexity gap is like is very real between the amount of complexity that someone can hold and work with and the complexity in the environment um, but besides so there is this that whatever so there's this like exponential curve that we're on and part of that I think is fundamentally these like other ways of knowing and being and it's so one of the ways I think about it is the way that um, like like psychedelics is like an interesting conversation happening right now I think like one of the first things my partner said to me this morning was um uh 
psilocybin was just put on the fast track for uh, clinical trials. Um, and MDMA was before that. And so, and these like psychedelics, this is not the first time they've emerged in our society. They've, they've been around for a long time. And so there's like an, and you know, Michael Pollan has a new book out about this right now too. Um, but something happened where like our parents' generation, so my parents were hippies, right? 60s, 70s, like this generation, when they encountered psychedelics, um, there was like this free love thing, but there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of grounding in it, right? So now we're like seeing this like thing reemerge in our society, and the this exponential curve that we've been on since our parents' generation to where we are now enables us to go so much farther with it than they were capable of. Which is all to say, like, there is an incredible amount of progress in all ways, and progress in terms of like a desire for self-understanding and not just the, you know, um, sort of the, the age old question of like, what's the meaning of life, but this real desire for understanding self and other and why we're here and how we do life on this like global scale that I think is possible because of the, like our parents' generation and the, so like, I think our parents' generation got as far forward that they could in the inquiry considering their parents generations um yeah and so i mean there's a whole like sociological conversation about why that's the case that we don't have to go into and it's maybe not even that interesting but so i think i think there's also this exponential thing happening with like being able to like process like the karma or the epigenetics or however you want to talk about the generations that's come before us. What's epigenetics? Epigenetics is, um, is how your your genes. I'm probably going to butcher this, but how your the way I understand it is that um, so you have genes and your genes aren't just this like static thing, but they actually like they fundamentally change how they're expressed over your lifetime, depending on what you've been exposed to, and then that gets passed on to you. So. Um, there was just an article I came across yesterday about how epigenetically there's like uh, through the paternal line there's um, like a transference of like trauma so like your 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 father or the yeah whatever we'll just keep it simple your like the trauma that your father was exposed to and the trauma that his father was exposed to shows up in your genes in a way that's like open to being expressed in different ways depending on what you're exposed to in your life. So when we start to deal with our own trauma, we're actually we're dealing with the, the trauma of the generations that have gone before us. So it's a, yeah. So it's no, that's really interesting. It's important. Actually, I was in um, I was uh, driving through Europe and I had a, a German friend in the car recently, and he's sort of in his sort of early mid twenties, and he was talking about the work that he does. And that's around, sort of, I guess, especially for the German people, there's like that very specific thing he was talking about how the work he does, especially with men's circles, is mm. all around sort of like getting to a point of dealing with like trauma that goes back generations and how it's sort of just not talked about. And like that was a very specific example for that, like a very specific country in a point in time, but we got talking around that, that idea and how like 
basically the longer we stop the longer we repress talking about sort of the hurt that we're feeling yeah and the generations of hurt before that we just pass that on and on and on and on totally it's just yeah. been going on for centuries so if we are at all at a point where we're ready to be the people that step forward to start those conversations i feel that's one of the most revolutionary things totally can do yeah yeah totally and there so um so the thing i want to say is that like i feel like there's a moral imperative for us to do that and it's it's like there the and there's a parallel for me that's so direct in this conversation of like what's happening with the planet to like our ability to metabolize the trauma that has been passed through us and is in us and that like i just think they're deeply related like our ability to like deal with that means is also like our ability to deal with this other thing um and so this question that i uh i mentioned to you that i that i that's like just been on my mind a lot recently is like how do you, how do you get someone sort of so I'll say it two different ways one how do you get someone sort of bought into their own development and sort of similar question but in many ways the same question is like how do you get someone connected to their own pain and suffering and I was watching um, uh, a live stream last night of um, one of the lineage holders of the meditation tradition that I practice in, his name is Dan Brown. He's a Harvard psychologist. He's, he's like an encyclopedia. He's incredible, and he's had an amazing life. And last night he was talking about how someone was asking him, how can you meditate on joy and gratitude and all of these things in the face of, like, of utter suffering? utter suffering, if you're exposed to this, like, real, like, visceral suffering, like, whole villages being wiped out, you know, real, like, like, the, you know, people, like, starvation, asylum, all of this, um, and he shared a lot, but the thing that really stuck with me is, because it's, it gives me a new lens on this question, is because when you work to help someone heal their trauma the trauma that they've been exposed to their moral development far outseeds the average person so the equation of trauma pain and suffering being worked with and dealt with directly means you're you reach a a level of morality that can impact could could potentially impact thousands or millions of people and he gave some really amazing examples which I won't go into but so that's really interesting to me because well <laughs> like not even to go into the politics of our of my country right now um but we like not only do we need like these like incredibly moral role models, we need the the we like the the development of morality and our ethics and our society needs to be baked into how we function. It's not. It definitely isn't. It's not rewarded. I mean, often the opposite of morality is rewarded, at least financially, 
in our society. And I mean, the, and you know, the whole like continuation of the species is definitely at risk. And the way that we get to the, to the moral development is through the pain and suffering. So, I mean, it doesn't answer the question, but that's what I'm thinking about. That's what you made me think about. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this the other day as well. It's that um, the aversion we have towards pain and suffering is something that I think from a young age, most people, not everyone, most people are sort of taught to avoid yeah. that or, or le not even taught, just learned from, from the world around them that that's the thing we need to avoid. We need to seek pleasure, we need to avoid all pain and suffering. Yeah. Where really, pain and suffering is an inevitable part of life. And so, to avoid it is impossible. And if we have the understanding that avoiding pain is impossible, and we know that we have to go through pain, then it feels better to learn how to navigate pain and to learn from pain and to be able to ultimately move through that pain than it is to repress that pain. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's not something that, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not something that we generally are given tools to do. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so um, I think it's John Bradshaw. I don't know if John is his first name, but so um, Bradshaw, who really pioneered this work in like getting connected to like the infant self. Um, he, his work is fascinating. And uh, one of the things that he says is that your parents keep you from feeling the emotions they can't feel. So for a lot of people, that's, we learn fundamentally in our family systems, like off the bat, if our parents can't feel pain and suffering, if they can't feel fear, if they can't, you know, whatever it is, maybe they can't feel happiness. We, we learn, they keep us from feeling those things so they don't have to feel them because it's too scary for them. So I just think the invitation is, is that we have to learn how to, we have to learn how to sit with it. And, you know, not only, like, is the outcome, like, you become, like, a, a more morally responsible person and you can impact thousands of people, but that you fund, like, you, so what I believe is real is that you can't just shut down, like, part of your sensing system or your, your feeling system, right? Like, you can't, like, shut down pain and, like, expect to have really high experiences of joy, like, you just can't. That's not how we work. Um, and we are, like, incredibly sensitive beings. And most of what we do in our daily lives, like, disconnects us from that sensitivity. But if we're able to sit sit and, like, ground back down into our sensitivity, like, the, you know, or you just train your mind and you train your system so that, like, pain and suffering is just, like, it's energy in motion, right? It's emotion. It's just like, it's a, it has a different texture and a different flavor, but you don't sink down into it. I mean, that's the, that's like a, a, the watered down Buddhist perspective. 
the water down the sides of a lake there. Good. Um, I'm over like we've we've nearly been talking for an hour, um, which is good. It's been. I was, I was wondering if there's anything like that you, anything that you're thinking about at the moment, or that you're keen to explore more that you think would be good to talk about hmm. now. Well. I, yeah, I, I feel like I, I did a lot of that. Like, especially this, like, mm. how do we, like, how do we, how do we get people, like, bought into their pain and suffering? How do we get people bought into their development? Um, or, you know, inve- all the languages, like, economic language, bought in, invested, whatever. <laughs> Let's just leave that aside. Um but it's like the alternative the alternative to dealing with your pain and suffering is that you numb out you or you're you know you become an addict like however you deal with it you know i think the people who think their lives are going pretty well you know and they don't they're not suffering from addiction um, they're probably like numbing out like netflix and chill like binge watch yeah. that show I had this conversation the other day with a friend who was talking about the the feeling that it's sort of imperative to get people to start sort of talking about the difficult bits of life. And she said, but like, what about the people that just sort of get up and they go to work and they're relatively like, they're they're happy. They don't do any self-inquiry. They just come home and do bed. They're not, what's wrong with that? They're not causing harm to anyone. And they're sort of getting by, but my sort of, I mean, I wasn't sure, I didn't have like a firm answer, but I, my assumption was that if someone is not sort of dealing with things that are going on and just sort of gliding through life, then they may be like in a place where they're okay, but what about the like sort of the people around them? Are they, is there some like moral duty to sort of search out the things that are happening in your life to sort of deal with the, these sort of hidden traumas in your life so you can help be part of like creating wider societal change or is it okay just to sort of be you know I'm not that interested in exploring myself further and I'm happy to come home and watch Netflix I'm happy to sort of just sort of stay in this sort of bubble of just I don't know not exploring yeah it's a good question um I think the I think the the level of complexity that we live in and the degree to which even if we don't want to acknowledge it the degree to which we are we are fundamentally connected um you know if if nothing else like the this this planet we live on connects us so I think it's I think it's really So there are, there are multiple ways. Like I think it's super like we have to stop thinking about ourselves as individuals. Like I think that I think that's a big deal. We're in such a highly individualist society and I think this is one of the fundamental changes we're going to see in the next few decades is that this craving for community, this craving for real connection um, it's the only way we're going to be able to persist. 
So I think there's that piece of it. Um, and I think, you know, I think we need to have more, like we're in this sort of like postmodern, like flatlands thing where it's like everyone just like gets to have their own idea about things and it's all the same and like, you know, everything we do, it's like, you know, going to work, like cooking dinner, watching Netflix, spending time with our children. It's all like the same, like it's all like there's no value judgment. And I think that we have got to get rid of. Like we we need value judgments that are humane and that are not built on like a dominator politics, but that are built on a developmental politics. Um, I don't know. So those are that's like some there's some sketches of ideas. You know, I think that you can't do someone else's work for them and that they have to be ready. And I think increasingly we're going to find ourselves, like like the situations and the dynamics we find ourselves in are going to outstrip our capacities. And so I also think there's like, there's something like fundamentally compassionate and humane about saying like, if you're not showing up for your life and you're not like taking care of your aliveness, not only like is... Not only are you just dying, like, you're living sort of a dead existence, like, you're just not going to be able to cope, like, you're not going to be able to deal with, I mean, we're talking about, like, genetically engineered humans, like, the future is now, like, we need to make, like, serious, like, ethical judgments pretty soon, I mean, already, years ago, but, like, and, like, we need the capacity to do that, and it's, like, more and more people are negotiating this at the level of their daily lives. It's not being, um, less and less it's being, ex, like, the decisions that we make over our lives are being sort of uh, externalized or exported to an expert. Like, there's less expertism um, as we take more matters into our own hands. So I think we're going to have to be able to negotiate these dynamics. Well, nice. There's a lot to think about there. Let's thank Dara Blumenthal again for... Um for taking the time to talk to me and for inviting me to her apartment to record this conversation. Um, it was really good. I, I, I think it's one of those perfect conversations for me where like I didn't go in, I didn't leave with loads of solid answers. I just, all the questions that were asked led to deeper questions, a deeper inquiry. And I, I feel like it was a very gener- generative conversation where I, I, I felt like it, sort of one of those things that, that I think there's that, that saying like the best questions are the ones with no answers but lead to more questions and I feel that that definitely was the case there um, I really liked uh, that um, the, the, the quote she said from her mentor Rob Mathema. Um what was it, let me just find it every time we trade our aliveness for something else we enter a delusion that we are going to have some other chance to do it at some other point in our life I think that's really um, yeah I think that's really uh poignant I think that's really uh yeah really I don't know why it just touches me somewhere deep like that idea that like really to sort of seize the moment and not put stuff off and just realize that this is our time now we are the ones that we've been waiting for um but yeah I I won't get into quotes from that this conversation because I think there's so many um but yeah just again thanks so much to Dara 
and uh, it was really exciting uh, to be recording a podcast from New York. Um, yeah, me, a little country boy from rural Buckinghamshire, sitting in a New York apartment. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. <laughs> I loved that. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, I mean, if you're if you're still listening, you've got this far, then there must be something that you uh, that you liked. It. I assume you're not just listening right to the end just tell me how much you hate it so uh, it would be great if you could go on to uh, itunes or your podcasting app and rate and review the podcast and uh and also as i mentioned at the beginning uh, i have got this patreon page where i'm trying to make these uh this this podcast more financially sustainable so that's www.patreon.com forward slash ministry of change i'll put links below uh, and then also you can go onto my website, Mark, uh, which is the Ministry of Change. dot org, um, and on there you can find out extra stuff about my mental health journey, travelling around in my van and meeting people. Um, so yeah, that's that's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Is that what you say? Tuning in, um, and yeah do go back and listen to some of the other ones and I'll be posting more in the near future. So thank you very much. Goodbye.